Bonjour and welcome to Sabed, the podcast about psychology, philosophy, and minor grievances which shall not stand. I'm your host, Sophia, and this is Greg. Happy New Year, Sophia. <laughs> Thank you. Happy New Year. Although it's literally January 19th, so 19 days past the new year. But that also applies because we haven't recorded an episode since literally December. Oh yes, right. happy new year. <laughs> yeah. Dear listener, we took the time to travel and be with family and yada, yada, yada. We had a big hiatus, so this is our first step back, and here we go. Exactly. Thank you. I also wanted to take time off to spend it with my family, with the people around me, so I wasn't really thinking about podcasting, but now I'm ready. I've had a lot of thoughts in that month time frame, so um, so now I'm ready to impart all those thoughts onto everyone. (laughs) So before we get started, um, so the pod, the episodes that we have done before, um, when I put them up, I usually end up listening to them multiple times before I actually get them posted because you know we we do it and then I edit them down and make sure all the levels are right and all that. Then I put it up and then I listen to it again to make sure that it all went up properly and there's no like pops or cracks or whatever corrupted files. Um, So before we get started, I'm going to put this out there to you. One of the things that I have noticed about both of us in our ranting is we are quick to pull punches and we are quick to qualify things. And so in that, so we'll, we'll say a position and then we'll say, but I'm not so sure, or, but maybe there's another, we'll, we'll like, we'll like kind of pull, pull ourselves back a little bit. And I think in real life, that's probably a good thing because it means that we're measured and we're thoughtful. But for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to keep track of these things. And if either of us does it, I want to make a New Year's resolution that we will call each other out and make us stand in our in our uh, positions here. Okay, fair enough. I feel like that's kind of naturally who I am, though. I'm just like, well, I could see it in this way. But I can also see it in this way. I don't know if that's a problem, but I do do that in like multiple aspects of my life. Again, I don't think it's a problem in real life, but for the sake of what we are doing here, I'm going to be brutal about it. Okay. I will try to remain firm in what I'm saying. Be a blowhard. I'll try. Well, with that said, what are we talking about today? Today, there were just a lot of things that I wanted to talk about in one episode. I was kind of struggling to figure out how to combine them all, but I figured the common theme was the thoughts that I came up with in the last month while I was home, doing things that I do at home, and also coming back from home. So everything that arose from that and also things that came up after that. So I'll just be talking about my experience, and then you can talk about your experience, and then we can compare. 
I don't know if it's really a rant, but it is what happened. <laughs> we'll find a rant. Let's do it. Okay. The last time we had an episode, I think, was in December. I don't remember when. I think literally a month ago, though, like an exact month ago. So Yeah, it was the 20th, perfect. the last time yeah. we were together. So Nice. A solid month hiatus. It was before Christmas, and since then, I've gone home to my childhood home, and I spent Christmas over there, the, the holidays, and I feel like it was really nice. It's always nice to spend the holidays with your family or like the people that you grew up with, because I feel like even like, I don't even celebrate Christmas, but I feel like the holidays is just like a really nice time for me because you see everyone else with their families, everything's decorated. Everything feels a lot slower. The pace of life is just like, everyone's just like, feels a lot more generous, kind. It's just like a nice season, like psychologically. So I always like to spend it with like my family, the people who have supported me since I was literally born. And it's a nice opportunity to do so because I realized also that not everyone gets to do that. And sometimes you like live halfway across the world from your family. Sometimes you don't have a family, etc. So the notion of spending it with your family or like even if you don't even have a family that's like very supportive of you, like the fact that you have to choose your own family can be very hard. So the holiday season, well, is one of my favorite seasons and I find really nice can also be very hard for people and I feel like now that it's over I feel the gratitude of my own life and the people who supported me and all in all it was a great time really enjoyed it but also (laughs) every time I go home especially around the holidays because it's such a like that limbo state of like being in between Christmas and New Year's like no one's really doing anything like everyone's kind of just waiting for the new year to start it always feels like a very transition phase where everyone is like just resting which to me is nice because i enjoy resting and it's a nice break and i like going home for that specific reason because everyone is resting at the same time whereas if i went home at a different time it's like i might be resting but other people might be doing other stuff so it doesn't feel like the feeling that of community that i was looking for But given that, I feel like every time I've returned home ever since I've moved out of my home has been very different, which is natural because I don't live in the same state as my family anymore. And all of my growth happens separate from that. So like when I come back to the space where I grew up, Obviously, I'm a different person every time, and so are the people who are there. Like, everyone's lives happen at the same time. And basically, while I'm growing, everyone else is growing. So, like, when I come back, it's like, oh, I have all these new experiences, new thoughts. And then all the people there are like, oh, they have all these new experiences and new thoughts. And then it's just like you're two completely different people at the same time, but, like, in a place where you used to be, like, the same or like you remember it being the same or different way. So I think that's always really trippy. And like, as I grow older, you know, growing pains, (laughs) it's just like the differences or like the growth that you experience become more, I don't know how to say it, just like more, more distinct, just because there's so many things that happen to you as you like, obviously like accrue life experiences that um you can feel further and further away from like 
a place that you've called home or like a place that um, you've had certain memories in and you can be like, wow, there's so much that ties you to a place. Like there's so much context that you can like associate with a place or a situation or people. And then once you like remove yourself from that context and you come back, obviously it's like a completely different relationship. And I think that's always something that I realize when I come home is that like, oh, I'm like an adult now, <laughs> you know, like my home is going to be different, feel different to me now as it is going to be when I'm like a child, obviously, like there's a completely different relationship that you have with like that part of your life. So it always makes me feel like just like a little limbo, like I'm a child, but also not a child kind of state, like you'll always have that relationship of a child, but also like you're an adult who does like your own taxes and stuff. <laughs> so it's really weird. But all in all, it was a very nice experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I was grateful to spend the holidays there. Um, another thing I guess that I did was I went snowboarding because I'm from Colorado. So basically everyone does a snow sport there. It's kind of, it's integrated into your education when you're in elementary school. And then from there on, if you choose to continue, you can continue, which I did because I like it. I like spending times in the mountains. I like the fresh air, the cold. I don't even know. I just enjoy it. And I don't know if I would enjoy it if I had to like choose it. Like if I didn't grow up with that and I just had, like, had to choose it myself. Like, would I have done it? I don't know, but I do it. So <laughs> I did it while I was back. And I've been a skier my whole life, but I recently picked up snowboarding about a year ago just because something about me is I like a challenge. <laughs> I like doing things that are new. And snowboarding was something that I've always wanted to try, but I never thought I could do. So I wanted to try it last year, and I did. And it was extremely difficult. <laughs> so I had the humbling experience of failing and falling a lot while first trying it out. But I also found it really rewarding because I failed and fell a lot, weirdly, because once you get it, I feel like you get it. It's kind of hard to explain for me, but it's just like, it feels so unnatural. Just everything about snow sports in general, like whether it be ice skating, skiing, snowboarding. I don't really know who invented any of those things. I think a Norwegian invented skiing and an American invented snowboarding from what I read in the past, but it's just like not something that a normal human like millions of years ago who was just trying to provide for their family would do. It's just like going down a hill for no apparent reason. But now, as society and humanity has advanced, like the ability to provide for yourself has been more or less a given. So like I feel like we've evolved to have these hobbies, and that's just a natural evolution. So when you put yourself through these things, it's kind of like there's always the thought of like, why? <laughs> you know, like who invented this? Why am I doing this? Why do people do this? And... I still do them because I enjoy them, but there's always the self, I think I'm just too conscious as a person to be honest, but there's always the thought of like, 
this is kind of funny that I'm doing this right now. <laughs> like, I don't really know the purpose of this. But long story short, I feel like snowboarding is very unnatural. <laughs> All these sports are kind of just like survival instinctly. You don't want to be like going down a hill where you could fall and tumble and possibly break a bone. But in order to snowboard, you are supposed to do that in order to like gain momentum because essentially when you're snowboarding, they teach you how to like, it's, let me try and explain. I'm not trying to dumb down what snowboarding is, but I'm trying to explain it in a way that makes sense to what my argument here is. Um, basically what you do is like your two feet are in a board, like you can't move your feet at all. And that alone feels very restricting. Um, and can feel, especially like when you're going very fast, you feel very, you can feel very trapped in the board because you can't move. Like if something goes wrong, you can't just like jump out of it as you would with like a ski where your, um, two legs are on different like mediums. So like, it kind of feels like walking because both your legs are free. This one, your legs are not free. You have to rely on basically the momentum of like the movement of your hips, your thighs, um, squatting. So it's a very athletic sport. I'm always in pain afterwards. And yeah, so it's unnatural. You go down the hill and in order to turn or like to slow down, basically you either face upwards on the hill or you face downwards on the hill, but like at a parallel. So you're not, the board is not like facing like straight down. Essentially you're going at it at like a, I guess it's perpendicular angle. Like you're like crossing it from one side of the mountain to the other, not up and down. And um, that, first of all, feels weird because you see a hill naturally you think you're going down but if you just go straight down you're gonna go really fast so like you need to cut the speed a little bit and cut into the mountain in order to reduce that momentum and slow yourself down and feel more control but it feels unnatural because like when you're facing upwards on a hill you're not looking where you're going or even when you're facing downwards you're still not really looking where you're going you can't really see what's happening behind you or yeah behind you so you can feel like someone's going to run into you. And then in order to not like to actually make the momentum, there's a point when you're boarding where you have to like turn so that you are parallel to the mountain and going straight down from up to down. And that is also very scary because you go really fast, really quickly. And there's a point where like you feel like you're losing control. Um, so those are a lot of things that you have to or at least I had to learn while I was snowboarding. And it was hard to do all those things, to learn something that you're completely new at, to lose control a little bit, to understand that you have to lose control in order to get control. And I feel like it can be a very frustrating and humbling sport because of that. Um, but given all that, I like it for that very reason. <laughs> I feel like mentally the process of overcoming something that's very hard can feel satisfying to anyone but also to me just because like I said earlier I like a challenge I like things that are like not inherently easy to me and then seeing how I react to that situation and being able to overcome it or even not overcome it but just like trusting that I know what to do in the process I think 
it's empowering. So when it comes to snowboarding, it's like, it's kind of funny also because I have these thoughts while snowboarding. Like I'm just like going down the hill and I'm just like thinking about this when I could just be snowboarding. Granted, it's very fun. Like once I get it, I'm just like weeing down the hill. I'm just like having a great time. But um, I also think about these things a lot. So don't know if that makes me a worse snowboarder because really you're supposed to put yourself in the moment or if I'm just um, thinking too much. But I do think it's interesting because like I said before, everything is very unnatural. Your brain is not wired to do these things. But something I realized is that like, in order to get good at anything really, snowboarding, playing an instrument, I don't know, baking, you have to practice. Like you have to put yourself through the motions of going through everything um, over and over again until your body understands that that's what you're supposed to do. And that can be very boring naturally like, you have to have a lot of discipline to be able to put yourself through that over and over and not necessarily be good at it and not see the improvement immediately. Um, so, for example, with snowboarding, when you're, like, cutting across the hill trying to turn and learn how to, like, slow down while you're on the hill, you have to, like, lean on the hill, whether that be forwards or backwards, depending on how you're facing. And that's very unnatural for most people. And you have to keep doing it until your body understands, like, oh, this is, like, how far I'm supposed to lean until my body, like, can move but not fall down. Like, there's going to be a lot of moments where you fall down. Um, there's going to be a lot of moments where you, like, feel like you're going out of control because you're not leaning enough to turn. And then you just, like, go really fast, etc. Basically, it's really hard. <laughs> but I realized that as I keep doing it more and more, like, I'm just like, okay, I have to like learn this action. So I keep doing it. And then I do it more and more. And then eventually when you put yourself in that situation, your brain makes the connection where it's like, oh, I'm on a hill. My feet are in this board. I need to lean this way so I can, you know, slow myself down and turn in the according way. And eventually like it becomes second nature like it becomes a muscle memory where you know your body knows what it's supposed to do but it doesn't get to that point until you like train yourself really to get to that point like you have to have you know the discipline you have to have the motivation to actually get there and um that can be hard but once you get to that point I find it very satisfying because when I was snowboarding over break it had been a really long time since I've been snowboarding so it was um, humbling for me to realize that, like, okay, I practiced a lot over the last season, but this is my first time doing it in, like, eight months. And I realized that, oh, my brain knows what to do, but I still had to practice. Like, you can lose that skill very quickly. So I wasn't good at it immediately. And I was like, shoot, I thought I would learn it once and I would know what to do on every mountain ever. But... Obviously, I didn't. So, like, the first few runs, I was definitely falling a lot. And I was scared because I hadn't been on a mountain sliding around in a really long time. And like I said, it's very scary. So I think I let that mental block, like, prevent me from actually just feeling it, knowing that I knew what to do, and just, like, going with it. I was just scared for, like, the first few runs. So I just went on the bunny hill for, or, like, the easiest hill for the longest time. Um... But after a couple runs, I challenged myself and decided to go on like a bigger hill or like a longer hill. And 
I just realized that like once I like trusted myself, like I had done a couple runs before I had the practice of a whole season behind me. Like once I was like, okay, I know what to do. You can do this. Like once I convinced myself that I like actually knew what I was doing, I realized that the mental block stops you from doing a lot. Like the fear of um, tumbling down a hill, of falling, of not looking right can stop you from doing a lot. And I like to think I'm like self-aware enough to like prevent myself from that, but it's just like basic, a basic emotion, you know, like feeling fear, feeling scared of something. And that can, like I said, that can just literally prevent you from doing what you actually really know how to do. So once I just got over like that mental block, which is easier said than done. I think I had to go through like the practice of doing multiple rounds before I could get over that block. But once I was like, okay, it's not so bad to fall. It's or, and I went back in the motions and I was like, okay, this is what I need to do to achieve this outcome. I, you know, was eventually able to like just coast along and just like go down the hill. And I was like really proud. I was like, I only snowboarded for like one day or two but I was able to feel comfortable in doing it again. And it just made me realize like how much of a sport or how much of a mental sport snowboarding is. And just like in general, sports are so mental. Like I went to a basketball game recently and I realized how much of it is like performative, like how different it is to be like just playing basketball, like on the streets or like in the courts at school versus when you're like in the NBA, like there's so many lights flashing on you. There's so many people cheering for you. If you're an away team, people are booing at you. Like I could not handle that kind of pressure. And it made me view sports and anything that's like a performance, people who perform, people who are able to do things at that level very differently. And I was like, for me to feel that fear and overcome it in my own like personal individual sport versus like doing it for a company or a paycheck like I don't think I could ever so it made me respect athletes a lot more and it made me realize how much of life how much of sports how much of anything really is just I mean I don't want to say it's just like a mindset change I think I'm contradicting myself in the way that you talked about earlier so I will not say it might not be a mindset change. I think it is a mindset change because you have to have like the mental fortitude, the strength to be able to um, go through pressure, to go through rejection, to go through failure. And not everyone has that kind of strength. I mean, like I don't even have that kind of strength half the time either. So I've realized that these people who achieve like really great things who are able to be professional athletes, et cetera, um, they've probably had to go through the same phase that I did where it's like they were really bad at something, but the difference is they were able to overcome it. And I was too on like a personal level, but I think they were able to overcome it more and keep overcoming it consistently. Whereas I don't think I could commit (laughs) to a life of that. So mad respect. But all this to say, is that I've realized recently that fear, anxiety, not trusting yourself can lead to a lot of, like, I don't know how to phrase it. I mean, it stops you from doing a lot of things when in reality, 
you know yourself, like you've been through a lot of situations like this and you can do it, but you're just telling yourself that you can't. This turns so motivational. But another example of this is when I had an interview recently and I get so nervous for interviews. I get so anxious, like the days before the interview and the day of the interview, I can't do anything. I'm just like nervous and pacing around. But interestingly, what I've noticed is that every time I'm in the interview, I'm fine. Like I can, I'm like in game mode. Like this is what I feel like an athlete feels like. It's like once they're on the stage or once they're on the court, like they're fine. But I'm sure before that moment, they're just like anxious or like nervous because I think that's natural. Um, but it made me realize that like, I know what to do. Like I know myself, I know what to talk about, but I, I hype myself myself out of it I guess so much that I it causes you know fear or anxiety so I took that lesson that I learned from snowboarding and I realized it in other aspects of life my own and other people's and I just think that fear and not trusting yourself can stop us from a lot of things that we have the potential to do. So going into the new year, I hope that I and other people remember that we know ourselves, we know what we want. We don't have to, you know, pretend to not or pretend to want something that we don't. Because at the end of the day, once you trust yourself and trust that you know what to do, I feel like that can get you a lot of places. I have so many questions and so many thoughts, um, okay. and I'm going to work backwards. First, um, when you went snowboarding, uh, when you were back home, did you go with friends or did you go by yourself? I went with two friends and my dad. Okay. Um, when you were on the hill, did your performance uh, vary based on who was with you and who was watching you? Did you do better when you were by yourself? That's true. I mean, I feel like I was doing better when I was like with my dad because I trust him and I feel like I could fail in front of him. But when I was with the two friends, I was like, now I have to show off. Like I had to pretend I know what I'm doing. So I feel like that does definitely impact Interesting. my performance. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like that's, you know, a, a level of degree, you know, getting closer to performing on on the stage, right? And and how you react to that is pretty telling, I think. Secondly, um, I know you learned how to ski in Colorado. Did you learn how to snowboard in Colorado or did you learn how to snowboard in Minnesota? I learned how to snowboard in Colorado, but I only snowboarded for like two days in Colorado. And then I did most of it okay. in Minnesota. I just, from personal experience, there are two really big differences in degree of difficulty for different reasons at both places. And I'm curious what you thought, think about this. So in my experience, Minnesota is way harder in that the snow is so icy. And so when you're, when you're learning how to carve, when you're learning, like, like, again, like when you're trying to trust yourself riding like backside where you can't see where you're going, it's way more nerve wracking to like go heel side and worry that you're going to like hit a piece of ice and like just wipe out versus Colorado. Like the snow is just 
better. <laughs> and so I, I feel like you just have a better feel for what you're doing and you can take more risks. Yeah, that is a good point. Minnesota was super icy from what I remembered. And that was not fun to snowboard on. But I feel like you learn a lot of skills from that because in Colorado, I also ran into ice. And I yeah. was like, shoot. <laughs> I still don't like it, but at least I knew what to do because I learned in Minnesota. Right. On the other hand, what it was always really hard transitioning between the two is skiing in the Midwest or snowboarding in the Midwest. You rarely have a run that's longer than like 30 seconds long and you're at the bottom of the hill and then you get a little break on the, on the chairlift or the rope tour or whatever to get back up. And I feel like Going to Colorado, you just don't realize how long you have to have your brain turned on because, you know, you, you take you take the lift to the top of the mountain and you might be a half hour by the time you get all the way down to the bottom. And it's just so tiring. That is so true. Yeah, because this is my first time going to this mountain. And my friend was saying like, oh, this run, because I was like, oh, there's a really long run because I was used to the Minnesota runs being really short. But she was saying, oh, there's like this really long run, but it took me like three hours. And I was like, oh, how did it take you three hours? Like it's a green. But then I went on it myself and I was like, I think it did take me three hours because like you said, it's so much time where you have to like be mentally like, okay, I have to do this in this moment. I have to do this. Like it doesn't come naturally at first. So it takes a while. Your body is tired. And there's a lot of flat terrain, which is also not fun when you're literally one board and no momentum. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's different when you have skis and you have poles to get through some of that stuff, but yeah, yeah. that's different. Um, so then that made me think of, you know, as you're talking about how we've kind of evolved, whether, you know, skiing was an Alpine thing to like get to whatever the store yeah. or whatever it was. And now it's like this like sport, which is way different than like a lifestyle thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like so much of our enjoyment and so much of the things that we take on as sport or as, you know, fun activities are like hacking that stuff that we've lost as, you know, we, we don't have to do this stuff anymore. So we're finding a way to like assume, you know, assume that risk in a controlled context. Like we don't have to fly down a mountain anymore. But if we can trick our brains to think that we have to, then you get like that fight or flight response and you're like pushing through that unnatural feeling of putting yourself in danger, but like you're not really in danger. Yeah. I think about that with like Mount Everest a lot because I went through this phase where I was obsessed with like mountains from Mount Everest and I was like, why? Because it's so dangerous. Everyone knows so many people have died going on that journey, but I'm sure like once you summit that mountain, like once you're able to like see the literal top of the world and know that you did that, like that must be very fulfilling. So I feel like it's just in human nature to want to overcome things, but is it natural? Probably not. <laughs> There's no reason to go up there, you know? Right. And it, you know, it's like talking about, you know, running a marathon, like there's no True. reason to run 26 miles, <laughs> but like at some point there was, and your body still reacts like it's a big deal. Like you get that endorphin rush and I don't know, you get all those feel good chemicals like the oxytocin or whatever comes out of your brain. And, um, right. So when, when you were talking through that and like what that feels like when you're in, when you're in that moment, um, we, we've talked about this before. I think I've talked about it on stream. Um, I coach little kid wrestling 
And one of the things that you have to teach kids about is so much of that sport is like pushing through unnatural physical responses. Like, cause the whole point of that sport is somebody is using the leverage of your body to put you in a position you don't want to be in. And if you do what is natural and take whatever pressure that they're putting on your body off, you end up on your back and you get pinned or whatever. And the only way to win and the only way to push through those things is to do what feels totally unnatural and like make it like basically make it hurt more in order to get through it. You're resisting in an unnatural way. Um, and when a kid is first learning how to do that, it's really hard. And, um, some, you know, some kids are just naturally little Tasmanian devils and they just do it and they get it right away. But for a kid who like the fight or flight response is more tuned to like the flight side of things, it like, it'll take it, it, if they don't quit, it's like a whole year before they finally like figure out what that release is and kind of feel like what it's like to push through that fear or that discomfort. And then you get like that rush of it actually worked and then it, it gets to be addictive. Um, and so often in, I think any sport, but in this in particular, when you talk to people who used to do it, like coaches or whatever, and a kid is having a hard time, you, you really get a lot of responses about, like, enjoy it while you're there because once it's over, like, you never get that rush again. And I feel like it's like that with, with snowboarding too. Like, it's hard to explain if you've never done it before. But, you know, when you get to the bottom of the of the hill or the mountain, whatever you're doing, and it was like, you know, a, a fast run or one that like you got a little out of control or you saved a really icy spot and like caught your edge, but you didn't go down and you get done and you're like your heart's beating really fast and you're like a little bit on the edge of your nerves. And it just feels so good when you get done and like when you're going home. And at the time when you're in the middle of that, I don't know, sometimes you feel like you just want to quit. You just want to like call for the sled dog to come get you. And I don't know. I think that I bet if we analyzed all the different sports and all, especially all the different like action sports or like thrill seeking stuff, even like roller coasters, right? Like that's just the most regulated safe thing that you could do, but you feel like you're going to die the whole time. Um, but we do it over and over again because you get addicted to that like adrenaline rush. I don't know. I guess maybe it's about, like you said, kind of embracing that moment to moment. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I don't know if you told me this or someone, or like I read it somewhere, but when you're going skydiving, does this does this spark any memory at all? Because I don't want to like say it to you if you already said it to me. I haven't been skydiving, so I probably didn't say it. But you have, or you have? I have not. I have not. You haven't? Okay. Would you? I don't know. I go back and forth, like. I think it could be fun, but also that's like a line where the risk reward, again, because I haven't done it, maybe I don't get it, but I feel like the risk reward is way more bent toward risk than a lot of other things. It's true. The adrenaline is a little too much. <laughs> well, no, the adrenaline would be great. I bet I would be so stoked when I did it, but then like the the non-lizard part of my brain is like, yeah, but there's other ways to do that. That's how I feel about Mount Everest. 
But what I heard, or I think read, I don't remember at this point, is that when you're skydiving, like once you're in the air, you don't feel like you're falling. Like you kind of, it's just like that point in velocity where like your body doesn't understand falling or something. Right. It's like weightlessness in space. Like space, you're technically falling the whole time you're floating, but it doesn't feel like that. That is true. Yeah. I guess it is kind of similar G-force situation, but yeah. So like people don't like feel like they're falling. They're just like suspended in the air and looking at the view, which I thought was really cool because like similarly, it's like 90% fear or like even 100% fear is going skydiving. Like no one wants to do it. I don't really want to do it. But once you're there, like once you overcome being able to jump out of a plane that's like however many feet up in the air, you just enjoy it for the whole ride down. So it's kind of a similar thing with like adrenaline. Right. Yeah. Again, I think we are, maybe we're not wired to do it. I think our body's responses are wired to reward us for coming through a life-threatening situation to like make us feel good that we didn't let ourselves die. Um, And so then because we don't usually get in those situations anymore, we have like this urge to hack that and get that over and over again. Um, And I get it. I mean, what's, what's living if you're not going to live, but I don't know what the line is. I feel like skydiving might be that line for me. (laughs) Yeah. When I was going through the phase, my adrenaline junkie phase, I wouldn't say adrenaline junkie, but when I wanted to, figure out why people did these things and I was obsessed with Mount Everest I was like would I do Mount Everest but I don't think I would because kind of like what you said the so risk factor is just too too much so and Everest it's... trips a different part of my brain in that mm-hmm. when you're skydiving the reward you don't like you're not working for that reward like you jump out of the plane and that's like overcoming the fear but that's the work that's... of it then it's pulling the pulling the cord and you land Everest, I feel like the reward is the, you know, and granted, it's been so well documented what you need to do to make it, that it's not the same as when the first person scaled it, and it was like, going, you know, being an adventure and going into the great unknown. Now it's like, okay, you're, you're following these steps to make sure you don't die, and you have to hire a Sherpa and all this stuff. Um, so maybe that's not quite as rewarding, but I mean, you have to, you have to climb the mountain. You have to like put yourself through that physical art, you know, ardour. What's the word? I don't know. Physical torment. Yeah. You're, you're making yourself work really hard, and then you, the rush comes from you get to you get to the top and you touch the flag or whatever, and take a picture, whatever. Pee off the side. <laughs> um, sorry. You get frostbite <laughs> immediately. I mean, you have to pee at some point. You know, I never thought about that. Through all of my Everest obsessions, I never thought about that. Having to pee outside. Yeah, that's a yeah. good point. And then not not anything to do with the reward of it, but I've heard um, for the people who don't die on the way up, most injuries occur on the way down um, because you don't train for it, and it's like going you know it's going downstairs, so you're using a complete opposite set of muscles, um, and you don't train for it, so people pull hamstrings and hurt their back and all this stuff because they're trying to slow themselves down. Oh. Yeah. I've heard like after you summit it too, it's like you use all your energy trying to get up it that you don't have that much energy to go down. And that is fatal also. Sure. Yeah. It's because you, you don't, you're not thinking about that part when you're training for it. Yeah. It's so endurance based. And I'm an endurance sport person. So I, I identify with that. 
That's fair. I didn't think about the the whole physical aspect, to be honest. I mean, like, obviously it's there. But making that comparison, I was like, wait. It's kind of so... Well, you do have to overcome, like, when you're going in Everest, there's, like, cliffs. Or not cliffs. What is it called? The thing where it's, like, a hole? Oh, like, uh, like crags, rock yeah. shears. Uh, yeah. Crevices. Crevices. Chasms. Yeah. That's what they're called. Chasms. <laughs> so you have to go over a chasm. You don't have to do that when you're skydiving. So well, that the is whole true. World is a chasm. That is also true. It could but, be yeah, a- I mean, the, don't get me wrong. Aside from the physical thing, there's also, yeah, very dangerous elements that you know you can fall or whatever avalanche or. Yeah, you're overcoming a lot yeah. <laughs> by doing Everest, which. In skydiving, maybe you wouldn't overcome as much. You just pay money and you jump off a plane. But you do pay a lot of money to go to Everest, too. So. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> now, That's probably yeah. partially why I haven't done it is I don't have any money to do that. I was going to say maybe the things that people are more inclined to do when they have money are different. Because I also think of, like, the submarine situation that happened a really long time ago. Maybe not a long time ago at this point. It was, like, a it's year ago. It's all relative, ago. yeah. Yeah, where they – a bunch of billionaires were, like – in a submarine and then i don't know what the point of the submarine was but i remember it went wrong like i think well, so, the Titanic. again there are there are many podcasts and explainer videos and stuff for this if you want to get into it so don't take our word for it but if i was to summarize it yes that you know for the people who were not running the show who were along for the ride that died um they were, you know, they were putting their lives in the hands of something that was untested to go down and do something that was kind of thrilling. Um, so, you know, I suppose we could talk about that. As far as the person who actually did it, um, there was a whole, there's a, there's a podcast called Behind the Bastards, um, and they go into his whole thing, um, like his his business ventures up to that point. Um, and the big thing with that is it, when you go down that deep. Um, there's so much pressure in the water, right? And pretty much the only way to make sure that you're safe under that much pressure doing multiple dives because the pressure changes is um, a malleable material. So like steel, metal, whatever, because it can be pressed on and unpressed on and it doesn't change because it's malleable. Um, And it has to be a sphere because then the pressure is equalized on all sides. So like you're not going to have stress points that are gonna wear it down well this guy thought that looked dumb and it's really expensive to have that kind of material and that kind of shape and be able to fit a large a large enough group of people in it to justify the cost because when you do that there's so much structure involved that then once you get in the sphere there's no window so you can't see out and you can fit like four people whatever that's like what james cameron did to go shoot pictures of the titanic um so he was like you know what we don't need to do this so he took uh so there's two different kinds of watercraft there's like a submarine which is like the actual thing that can like live way down deep and then there's like a submersible which is a thing that like it needs to be taken to the place you're going and then it can go down and up but it can't really travel under the water if that makes sense yeah um so he did it with that. He did it um, as opposed to a submarine. So it's already like, it's like taking a hang glider rather than an airplane, right? Then he made it out of carbon fiber because carbon fiber is way cheaper and it looks cooler and you can make it into different shapes. 
But the problem with carbon fiber is it's like woven materials together. And so when you weave things together and then put them under pressure and unpressurize them, the all of the strands crack apart over time. And the early warning system they had in place only goes off, only went off after things broke. It wouldn't tell you when they were going to break. Um, and they didn't test how many cycles that it would take before it would break. So they were like, well, we'll know when we're going to die. So it'll be fine. And then to oh, make sorry. it, no, that's okay. And then to make it big enough for all the people that they had in there, they made it a, an oval as opposed to a circle. Um, which meant there was uneven pressure around the hole. Um, and there, there was a bunch of regulation stuff that he was like, it's fine. I was going to say, was there nothing that like stopped him from doing uh, this? I mean, like all of the people who had invested in the company at some point, real like you can follow the money trail. Like people had invested and they're like, oh, this guy's crazy. And they would back out and they would find somebody else and they'd realize, oh, this guy's crazy. And they'd back out. And so to some extent, I can't, like, I think the guy is crazy, but I think he stood by the courage of his convictions in that he went down on all of these dives. He's like, no, it's fine. I'll show you. And that was foolish, but you know, if he's going to put his money where his mouth is. That's fine. The people who paid him to do it, maybe they were, you know, maybe the wool was over their eyes. They didn't know all this stuff at the time, but Maybe know. they trusted every time he went down and didn't. Right, like yeah, he's done this. He hasn't died yet. It's probably going to be fine. That's so scary. <laughs> the things that you can get away with. The things you can get away with, yeah. And then maybe this is getting no. You know what? I'm just going to say it because that's what we're doing here. I think when I think when you have enough money to buy your way into something like that, it removes you from the the responsibility and the uh, the knowledge base that you should have to do something like that. So like the person who, like the Sherpa that goes up and down Everest in New Balance shoes and like carries everything. Wait, is that is that Everest or is that Kilimanjaro? I don't remember. There's Sherpas in Everest. Okay. Like, is another word. Right. Yeah. And they, they have all the knowledge, right? And they, I mean, it's still super dangerous and they die, but like if, they're the person that is going to keep this other person alive. And that other person is trusting them to make that happen because they don't have any of that knowledge. They have worked out and they're adventurous and they are thrill seeking. But then I feel like that's on them if they turn into a popsicle. <laughs> well, it's like, there's no real comparison here. It's like the colors test, you know, I don't know what it's actually called where, you know how like multiple or any personality test where it's like you can be a, a certain color or you can be like a certain Ooh, thing. Okay, we're going to talk about personality tests. Okay. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It just makes me think because like the whole theory behind like the color test is that like you have one color and you have another color. Like you have someone who's like a salesperson who's like really outgoing and then you have the person who like actually has the information behind it. Like that supposedly is supposed to make a good team. So, like, I don't even know if this is comparable. Maybe I won't say that because I'm not supposed to say that now. <laughs> but, like, in the example, yeah, in the example of, like, a Sherpa and the billionaire who was trying to scale Everest, it's, like, at least 
I would hope they're a good team. Like someone has the knowledge and the other person is the person paying this person to have the knowledge. And also struggling to think of the benefit of the billionaire, to be honest, but you know, it's like, he's funding this person to like have this experience. That's the thing is it's the, it's the heist team, right? Like you're putting together the perfect heist. So you need, you need your, your acrobat and you need your con guy and all that. Um, So a couple things that I'm thinking of with that one in the context of Sherpa and billionaire, I don't see meshing there because if what the billionaire is bringing is the money, the Sherpa doesn't benefit from the money. They're just getting like they're that's their transaction. That's the only thing that's getting them to do this again. So it's like a, you know, it's a kick. So it's not helping them go up the mountain other than it's giving them incentive. Mm, that's true. There's no mutual benefit. Right. It's, it's a one-sided, well, it's, it's, it's mutually beneficial, but for different reasons, it's beneficial to Sherpa because they get paid. It's beneficial to the billionaire because hopefully they won't die. True. But like in the context of scaling the mountain, like to your point. Right. Yeah. One of those Um, kind of. And then thinking about the personality testing, like the, the one that you're talking about is, is the, the business one. And the way I understand that is not so much that you need all these different people on your team. It's that a certain personality types thrive in certain situations and B there are ways that are um, more beneficial to manage that certain personality type. So you would want to, you would want to interact and manage somebody who is informationally driven differently than somebody who is driven by winning or, you know, like making a sale or whatever. Um, and it's not so much that you need all those people on your team, although you, you do because there's lots of different roles involved. Like, and you're building that perfect heist team. But I don't think that would work outside of that very narrow context. Like, that that personality test is not useful if you're going snowboarding. Well, in, like, a team context or, like, a context where there's, like, multiple people working towards something, I feel like it could help. Because I remember talking about this with my friends once also. We found out we don't work for the same company, but for some reason, we all did the colors test, and we found out that we're all different colors. And we're like, oh, this could be a compatibility thing where it's like, you know, there's not too many competing personalities in one group. Sure. Like, I feel like in a context of, like, a group, it might apply. Well, obviously, like, there's... No, I would agree with that. Um, you know, if we're talking sports and if we're talking basketball, um, you know, the, the Michael Jordan bulls work because everybody understood that, that Michael Jordan was an awful person, but he was really, really good. So they should listen to what he has to say. And everybody kind of defined their roles based on that. And in context where he was playing with another all-star, if one of them didn't step down, then it would just it would all fall apart, right? It's like right. if you have, yeah, if you had, if you were a group of friends had two really domineering personality types, I mean, maybe that would work, but most likely it would probably cause some friction in the group. I feel like it's just a lot about, like, compatibility, you know? Yeah. This seems like it's veering from the topic at hand. Well, maybe, but... you can, here, maybe you can veer into the, if we're working our way back to the beginning of your rant. <laughs> Um, you're talking about going home and how that feels different now. And what that got me thinking about is um, 
I've got a few more years than you kind of removed from both of us are lucky enough to have parents that are still in the, the homes that we grew up in. And I, I don't, I mean, I think that's relatively rare, I would guess. Um, but um, the longer I've been living not at my childhood home, the less it feels like going home is going home and more it starts to feel like um, your childhood room is who you were and not who you are each, you know, the more times you go back um, and then vice versa. And, you know, you've, you've been globe hopping a little bit more uh, so far that you, you haven't been in one place for super long enough where you might, may, I mean, maybe you do consider New York city your home home now, but maybe it still feels new to you. And then your baseline is still Colorado. The questions I had for that one, now that you have had, almost almost a decade of going back and forth do you find that you um are looking at the things that were who you are differently now like are you starting to see things that kind of defined you when you lived there being not part of you anymore oh definitely i mean i think that's natural but i mean i go home and my childhood bedroom is as i left it when i graduated high school it has like posters up it has relics of things that I used to do in high school so like I go there and I'm like it's nice because it's like a time capsule of who I was as a person but kind of like you were saying I'm not entirely I'm still that person was like in the past it's still part of me but I'm also different and if I like sometimes I like go home and I'm like I should renovate my room but then I'm like it's nice to have that reminder of who you were and like you said very lucky to have the ability to go back to a place where I grew up in because that is rare, but it's always different when I come back. Like, you know, people leave, my brother has left. Um, my parents like renovate our rooms sometimes to be like guest rooms or like use it for their own purpose as they should. It's their house. But when I come back and I'm like, oh, things change. Other people have changed. I have changed. Then I feel like I don't identify as much with the place as it is now. But in the past, of course, <laughs> it has great memories. So one thing that I've noticed about myself is when I am here, when I'm in the place that I am now, um, there's a tendency for to feel the, so I'm in, I'm in Minnesota. I grew up in Iowa. When I'm in Minnesota, I feel like there's a part of me that gets played up a little bit more where that is part of my identity is being not from here. And so like, either turns a phrase that I use or like if I slip into a little bit of a draw or something like that, like there, there are certain things that I find myself slipping into like this othering of myself based on being from a different place. And then when I go home, those things feel almost over the top. Like that it, it's like, it's like reverse code switching for me where then all of a sudden I'm playing an outsider as somebody who doesn't live there anymore. And so when I, when I interact with people from this former part of my life, it's not the same as when I interact with somebody who's in my everyday life now. Um, maybe Colorado for you doesn't have like that really distinct um, like social feel, but do you find yourself acting differently 
I think I used to do that in Minnesota a lot, to be honest, <laughs> because that was the first place. Being from Colorado was just like a central part of my personality. Like I would talk about it a lot or I would just like essentially talk about it a lot. I don't think Coloradans really have like a certain thing that identifies them as Colorado, except for we like the outdoors. I don't know. Like that's not something I can really bring up in like everyday conversation, but I would talk about. They drive the a Subaru. True. Yeah. They know how to snowboard. Yeah. <laughs> but so do people in Minnesota. So it's like, but I would say, I would clarify that I'm not from Minnesota a lot. When I'm in New York, I mean, I still clarify that I'm not from here, but there's so many transplants, transplants here that it doesn't feel as, like, it's not special, like, the fact that I'm somewhere else, from somewhere else, everyone's from somewhere else, like, it's not a central part of, like, how people interact with each other, so I feel like I'm doing it less now, but. Interesting. Yeah. Based on who you're with, do you, do you feel like you reference home, you know, when you say Maybe this is another question. Do you still refer to Colorado as home? Yeah, always. Yeah. Yeah, but that's because I grew up there. But I do remember talking to people in Minnesota about that. And if I would say, like, is Minnesota, when I say Minnesota, if, like, people ask me where home was in New York. Right. And it's different because they grew up in Minnesota, so obviously their home is Minnesota. But, like, for me... I mean, this is a whole, like, I feel like the whole situation, in Minnesota, a lot of people are from Minnesota, at least the people that I've met, so sure. I feel like my mindset was a little different, but here, I feel like a lot of people are not from here, so I feel like in that way, I interact differently, but I still say Colorado's my home, <laughs> wherever I am, and I also lived in Minnesota for six years, so that was also part of my personality at this point. It can't not be, although I never picked up the accent. Um, have you brought people from either place, Minnesota or New York, have you brought them home with you? I have. Not in New York, because I've just moved here, but people from Minnesota I brought to Colorado. One thing that I found really was the acceleration of that feeling of it not being home anymore was bringing people home with me and having to experience what was like normal to me through their eyes. Did you ever bring somebody home and, and like you get like that... Uh, like realization that there was something that you just kind of took for granted that was kind of novel? In some ways, yes. I just remember the things, for me at least, that I thought were normal, that I realized that someone outside of Colorado might not think was normal. Like, I remember someone, we were like driving from the airport to my house, and someone was like, wait, I thought you lived on a farm, <laughs> because there's so much like country land that you have to pass through to get to like places in Colorado. Like it's city, country, city, country. So like on the drive home, it was basically entirely country. So they were like, oh, I thought you just like lived on a farm. But to me, that was normal. So there were like little things like that, I would say, that I would pick up from other people. Um, otherwise, I mean, they thought my parents were really nice. So that was nice to hear. <laughs> and that, and that, cha that changed your perception of your that parents? That changed my entire opinion. <laughs> thought these people were jerks. <laughs> no. Two totally different rants, right? It was... Uh... I know. It was home, and it was it was scary stuff. That's why I was trying to connect them somehow, and I thought my common theme would be, like, home, but that was kind of a separate theme. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, there's, maybe the uh, theme is, is leaving home, branching out, taking a risk, starting a submarine business. <laughs> Ethically, maybe, following regulations so people don't die. 
hopefully. I Elon mean, that's Musk, up to you. You're listening. We we just said that fear is a uh, is something that we seek out. So, but at the not the expense of human life. <laughs> Although, I mean, you were super stoked about Everest for a while. I think I was true. This is true. I can't deny that. I think I was interested in it because I was like, why would anyone do it? But also, it intrigued me. It just occurred to me. You grew up in mountains. Did you have you done fourteeners? Like, have you have you been a mountain climber in your life? I really yeah. should, but no. Do that first. Yes. No, I'm not going to, like, straight up go to Everest. I'm not – I don't even think I'm going to climb Everest. It's just, like, the thought process of someone wanting to climb Everest. And I was like, could I get to that point? You should do it without rules and regulations. Don't bring a Sherpa. Just do it. Sneak in there. I don't even think you can legally do that anymore. But Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's probably true. <laughs> I mean, ideally, I would want to know what I'm doing, but – I don't yeah. think I could do it. It's too scary. <laughs> I think that's where we'll leave it. We found our we found our divide. <laughs> we found the baseline. <laughs> for me, it's skydiving. For you, it's it's unassisted climbing at Everest. <laughs> Even skydiving, I also will agree with you. I would not do. I don't think. Have you ever done one of the uh, like the skydiving simulators where it's just like a big ass fan that blows you up in the air and you float? No, I've known people who have, but I have not. <laughs> I don't know if I would do that either. Actually, I think that would be fine because you're not really falling. It's, like, controlled. It'd be fun. I, I don't think it hit, it scratched the same itch, though. True. You're like, just like, like you said, the whole thing is, like, feeling like you're not falling and seeing everything around you, like, taking in the majesty. Yeah. And you had to overcome so much more fear when you're jumping out of a plane. Right. So that is true. But at least you get to pretend to fly. <laughs> Maybe that's something. I would want to do in the future. What? Paragliding? I don't know. Just yeah. <laughs> yes, fly. No. Just like suspended in air. Like paragliding, I feel like I could do. But not I think going statistically down. that's even more dangerous than skydiving. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah, like like with wingsuits and paragliding and stuff, like the the amount of like the per capita fatalities is like really high. Oh. Like more than you would think. Like it, it doesn't have that same fear response, but it's like technically way more dangerous. I guess there's a lot more that goes into it, <laughs> like the wind. Go like, anywhere. You have more control, but that also means you have to maintain control. I don't know. That's true. And but also, car, but also driving a car is technically way more dangerous than almost anything. <laughs> but we do that all the time. So there's fear in every part of our lives, I guess. I'm not afraid of driving. Good for you. I'm kind of afraid of driving. Really? <laughs> yeah, ever since I crashed my car, I've been kind of afraid of driving. But like the, you mean when you like the when you backed into the thing? I didn't back it. No, did, it was like you... icy oh. on the highway. So I like spun and oh, like crash, crash. I didn't. Yeah, okay, crash. we'll have to talk about this offline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert! I crashed my car. Oh man. <laughs> It's okay. I mean, I you're lie. still here. Um, when I worked for the uh, power sports company for a while, we part of the part of my job was driving um, side by sides, which are like um, basically dune buggies, right? Or like really, really fast golf carts with <laughs> a roll cage on them. Um, and it's amazing how fun that can be when you're in 
again, a situation that is relatively controlled, but it feels way more dangerous than what you'd be doing driving on the highway to get there. You drive it on the highway? Does well, it even no, it's like you, you drive a regular car on the highway and you're going 80 oh. miles an hour and there's people all around you. And then you get there and you go off into the woods and you're going 50. But also in a place that feels like you're, you know, there's trees that are six inches away from you. You feel like yeah. it's way more dangerous. And that's way more fun, but not nearly as dangerous. Interesting. It's like the opposite effect. Right. Yeah, it's like the, 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 the perception of fear is what people go after. Mm-hmm. But not actually being scared. Yeah. Well, not actually being in danger. Like haunted houses. Yeah. Was it you that we were talking about that the place in... Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's like legit awful yeah. house. Yeah. It's like torch waterboarding people. Right. For the sake of, yeah. I don't think anyone's passed through that house, but. I think yeah. that's my skydiving line with that. Yeah, me like, too. I'm not a, I'm not a haunted house person anyway. Like it's fine. It doesn't make me excited. I just can't see taking that next step. I don't know why people would do that. You just leave there with trauma. But maybe that's what people, I don't know. They've done it. It's they've done everything at that point. Yeah, yeah, they've done it all. They skydived. They went up Mount Everest. This is all they can do. What's left but to torture myself? I guess so. Crazy human nature. All right, listeners, you have no idea what we're talking about. I don't think we're gonna get into it. This is just for us. (laughs) Sorry. It's all good. Maybe it'll be another episode. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, we we can do a whole. I don't know if I can rant about that though. I don't think there's much to say. <laughs> it's just this exists. I hate it. Done. All right, we just got a bonus episode right there. <laughs> this is the part of the show where we take a step back from the big rant of the day and talk about something small that's just been stuck in our craw over the last month. Um, I'm going to go first. The first thing that I'm going to talk about is when we talked last night. Um, and I shot you a message and was like, hey, we gonna, are we going to record today? And you said, yes, let's pod. And it got me thinking about, I don't know what the term is, but there's a term when there's like a definition for something, there's a word for something, but that thing doesn't exist anymore. And it, it may, it's made me start, so like, for example, when you save something on your computer, like the save button looks like a little floppy disk. Mm-hmm. But like anybody who didn't use computers um, before 1997 has never seen or used a floppy disk before. Oh. And so like there there are people that have been born after the year 2000 that they see that button they know it means save but they have no reason why. That's true. Or like landline phones are gone so like if you hold your your fingers up in like the Hawaii hang loose sign. Um, it's like universally accepted as banana phone, <laughs> right? You I know that you know somebody's gonna call you if they do that. Um, and when you say "let's pod," Apple discontinued the iPod, like I don't know, five years ago. I think ten years ago at this point. Oh, so I didn't like know that. when people are saying podcast, there's literally not a machine that that is a pod that we do and like you know there's 
like Pod Save America, and they have shirts that say Friend of the Pod. But the thing that we're doing, we're not potting, we're casting. We're doing the second part of that definition. And pod does not exist anymore. It's just a vestige because it sounds cool because it's podcast versus broadcast. And, wow. we've, and we've totally bastardized the term. And when we say the thing that we're going to do, we don't actually say the verb anymore. We say the noun, and the noun doesn't exist. So this is a two-sided rant. One, we should probably figure out a new thing to call this. And like maybe it's like X versus Twitter. Everybody's going to call it Twitter forever because eventually it's going to just be called Twitter again. And if that's the case, I think we need to bring back Pod because I use my phone for everything, and like I get the idea of having like a one-stop shop in your pocket to do everything. But I miss having a dedicated music device that I can like have, and the battery life is way better than my phone, and I can plug headphones in. And I'm old and analog a little bit, and I want that. And I know you can still get, like, MP3 players, but they're, like, shitty. They're, like, $20, and they, you know, they, they feel cheap and look cheap. I want, like, a high-end music player that I can plug my headphones into. A Sony Walk. <laughs> Just kidding. What is the pot? What is a pod? There's not nothing's a pod. Well, uh, so we invented a pod. Well, no, I. So the original the original term came from iPod, right? So it was a yeah. it was because pod you know podcasts were like it's it's whatever a radio show essentially, oh. but instead of calling it a broadcast, they call it a podcast because you download it on the iPod. Oh, I see. Okay, and but like, what is the pod in iPod? They just created be, this concept. That's, pod. That was just the name of the thing when it came out. Was iMac. Mm -hmm ipod and it was a yeah a little i'm sure yeah actually i'm sure we could probably look into the etymology what would pod be <laughs> that was I'm what curious. it was called but now ipod is no longer a thing well here let's look it up we got the internet <laughs> we can also look let's see it just seems so random Ooh, you can find like old ones refurbished Maybe that's your next purchase. See, I, I don't want that because it's not supported anymore. Like, I'm not going to plug it into my computer. I have to do some weird, like, backwards compatibility stuff. Oh, hey, here it is. Developed in less than one year, the original iPod was unveiled in 2001. The name came from a freelance copywriter who, after seeing the prototype, thought of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey and the phrase, open the pod bay door, Hal. Oh. So, like, do you ever see 2001? Uh, a space odyssey? That's the one. <laughs> I don't think so, to be honest. So, I mean, I it's been a long time. It's like the basic idea is there's these spacefarers who are basically trapped by the AI of oh. the space station, and the and that, that who's Hal, and he okay, like okay. he gets bored, and so he starts like torturing them, and oh. Like low key, like ramping up the stakes, but like the thing that they always talk at is like a circle that has a another circle in the middle that kind of pulses, and it looks like the dial on the iPod. Oh, okay. Anyway, so, that, so I'm guessing so that's where that comes from. That's a pod. I see. I mean, that's the logo for Apple Podcasts. I just don't know where it came from. Wait, right. no. The logo for Apple Podcasts looks like a Wi-Fi symbol. But anyway, I just didn't know. Maybe where it at came. one point it looked like an iPod. It probably did, and then they changed That's it because true. you can't buy them anymore. Or maybe I just like assume that it's a Wi-Fi signal because 
my little Gen Z brain can't process the fact that it could be anything else. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the is it? I don't even know what it is. Is it the three three curvy lines? Yeah, I think that's Wi-Fi. I think that's pretty universally Wi-Fi. No, it is. Okay. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> anyway. No, it's not. <laughs> anyway. We're okay. We're just. Let's this, this this new podcast is called Greg and Sophia Google Terms. <laughs> it's my everyday life, honestly. Right. I just don't know what anything means. I mean I guess that we could get into that too. We just said Google. And I did use Google to look that up, but There is a word for that. I'm sure there is. I'm not gonna look that one up though. <laughs> I'll let you know when I find out. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes. Alright, what do you got? Oh gosh. I didn't think about what I could rant about. Let me look through my notes. I mean, you kind of did two rants. You did you did going home and snowboard, so maybe that counts. You just did it backwards. Could that be my rant? Yeah. <laughs> that is my rant. I ranted <laughs> twice in the beginning, and now I have no rant left in me. <laughs> Au revoir! Au revoir, Phoebe! Au revoir, Simone! So this portion of the show is where... We recommend things or leave you with something to think about or to consume after we ranted at you for an hour. So my recommendation is actually a YouTube channel. It's called Answer in Progress, and it's kind of the same deal, similar deal, I would say. It's in the vein of like edutainment. Basically, they have an idea, something that they think about, and then they go through lengths to solve it. And I think they go through very creative links. I recently watched, when I wrote down this recommendation, it was like way back in December, and it was after I watched their video about rom-coms and like how rom-coms aren't rom-coms anymore. Like no one really has that nostalgic view of modern rom-coms. So I was watching it. They do things like craft AI code to create a script and see if that comes up with like anything comparable to like a 2000s rom-com and I was like how do they even think of that like that's so creative and it utilizes I'm sure the skills of everyone who's involved in the project you know coding in a creative lens and they're also really good at motion graphics so I think if you like the idea of questioning things and trying to find answers to them which I think is kind of like the vein of this podcast this apple cast this broadcast um then answer in progress might be something to enjoy so would recommend 10 out of 10 <laughs> i love that channel too and actually you turned me on to it so i can't oh i did oh. Yeah. <laughs> nice i'm a big fan i mean i suppose that's kind of the inspiration behind doing this at the end is i don't know i like learning about new things and you already did this for me so now you can pass it on to somebody else yay <laughs> my recommendation this week so I know that you are not the biggest fan of The Office. Are you a fan at all of the mockumentary format, or is it the format itself that is off-putting to you? Mm, I think I like mockumentary. Um, I can't think of another one. Parks and Rec. Well, and that's kind of in the same vein as The Office. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm not a poet. Okay. So I guess for people who are my age and older than me, there was kind of a phase where there was a – bunch of films by Christopher Guest. Spinal Tap, uh, Best in Show, which is about dog shows. Um, they did a bunch of them. Um, and that, that was like kind of the first big wave of like that format where it was like documentary, but then they have like the cutaways and all that stuff. And it's a 
satire. Um, the recommendation that I have today, there are uh, a pair of showrunners. Their names are Tony Ascenda and Dan Peralt. And way back in 2018, they had a show called American Vandal. And American Vandal was a send-up of all the true crime podcasts that were happening at the time. Like, if you think of Making a Murderer or um, uh, Serial, something like that. Um, and kind of the, the magic trick that they pulled was they they played that show completely straight. Like, if you if you just looked at the beats of the story and how it was all laid out, it was like just a cookie-cutter version of one of those shows. But they... What they did in the first episode is they took subject matter that was just patently absurd. And the subject matter was, instead of being a murder, it was um, somebody spray-painted dicks on all the teachers' cars at, at a school. And so it was it was the two kind of main characters going through trying to figure out who did this vandalism. Um, and the magic trick that they pulled is they had this really dumb first episode where all the characters are super like outlandish and silly and the premise of the show is super silly and by the end of the show you are so invested in it that you forget how dumb it is and you just want to find out what happened (laughs) so they did that they won a peabody award um like lots of lots of accolades and stuff and then my recommendation is their follow-up show to that it's called players and I apologize, it's a little bit old, but I'm going to explain why it's relevant right now. Um, so players kind of took that same magic trick that they pulled with um, American Vandal. And they did a straight-up sports documentary, like 30 for 30 or like the Michael Jordan thing, um, where you know super high production values, they're talking about um, kind of the biography of these sports stars. Um but the sports stars in question are um, major league gaming players. So they're legal legends, like video game players. And they are just the most ridiculous people you've ever seen. Like over the top, really silly. Um, and they pull the same magic trick where the first episode, by the time you're done, you're like, this is the dumbest show I have ever seen. And you watch the second episode and it starts to peel back the layers of these really ridiculous personalities. And by episode 10, one of the things that they set up is one of the main characters in the documentary had has a reputation for choking. Um, and he screws up a, a sequence of plays before the documentary starts. That's called Combo Wombo. And that's just a stupid thing to say. And through the first half of the thing, you hear people reference Combo Wombo over and over again, and they don't explain what it is. And by the time they get to the last episode, you finally find out what Combo Wombo is. And it's like, wrecks you. Like, it makes you cry. And so, the problem with Players is it was a Paramount Plus exclusive when it came out. And nobody has Paramount Plus because it's a stupid service. I happened to have Paramount Plus at the time because my wife likes to do um, crime procedurals while she cooks. Um, So we had it. Um... So I watched the show and I didn't have anybody to talk about it with because nobody has Paramount Plus and it's a weird premise for a show. So it was kind of off-putting to people, I think. And then after the exclusivity deal with Paramount Plus ended, they just took it off and it was nowhere for like a year. Well, it finally came out. It's on like 
Amazon Prime or you can buy it on Apple TV Plus. It's whatever, 10 bucks for the whole series, something like that. It's super worth the money. It's 10 episodes. So, you know, they're half hour piece. You can burn through in pretty short binge session. It's silly. It's pretty funny. Um, and by the end, I think you will cry. And it's called Players. Those are all my favorite things. <laughs> well, okay. So, it sounds amazing. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of American Vandal either. So You should watch that too. Again, it's one of those things where you have to get on the same wavelength. Like, I think if you were to bounce on the first episode, it might be hard. But if you can make it through that, again, the trick that they pull is each episode makes that more human and grounds it. And it just goes further and further down to the point where you feel like you're watching a straight up real world documentary. Nice. And then you try to explain it to someone and it's about something silly and you have to do this. Whole, like, you understand. <laughs> right. And you have to do this whole explanation that I just did to even set it up, but it's worth it. You should watch it. It's players. Um, and it's on wherever you can get video on demand. Pirate. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sail the seas. Yeah, I feel like a lot of TV shows are like that, though, where you have to like get through the first episode. Like Succession, like everyone there is so insufferable. Yeah. But if you can make it past the first episode, apparently it's good. I couldn't do it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that's why. I feel like the joy of Succession is they don't get any better, but you see them get their comeuppance yeah. over and over again. I see. Like it's like It's like bad people getting what's coming to them. Mm. And that's kind it's of, like a hate watch. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's also well written and it's interesting, but yeah, like the catharsis of the show is watching these terrible people. Like I don't know. I hear. I mean, a lot of people like it, and I should watch it. Yeah, put it on the list. But I think oh, you should watch the other thing first. Yes, <laughs> I feel like I would like that more. Yeah, I will definitely try and find it. Despite having like one streaming service and it being Hulu, Hulu's <laughs> maybe it's good. on Hulu. Could be. They have good TV shows, so it might be on there. Yeah, like the, the bear. bears on there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that was my That's last on. recommendation, which is also a year old. So a year. The way that you preface this recommendation, saying that it was old and it's only a year old. <laughs> I thought well, it was going to be like, like recommendation is like, hey, let me tell you about this thing I just watched. I watched oh, this a year ago, but the I reason, see. but I, but. If I would have told you about this six months ago, I'd be like, well, you can't watch it. I see. I mean, my recommendations are not particularly new. I didn't realize we were going for new things. I guess one time you told me to go outside, but maybe that is new. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, whatever's new to you. (laughs) All right. Are we going to say goodbye? Yes. You want to do it or you want me to? You can do it if you want. That's all the time we have for our show. Thank you for listening. If you would like to watch, we're not watching. What are we doing? If you would like to listen to more of our unhinged rants, you can find us uh, on any of your podcast services of choice uh, as Sabet. You can also uh, send us emails or for recommendations, rants of your own, uh, questions at sabetpodcast at gmail.com. And we have an Instagram. It's at SabetPod. And sometimes I post things. I would like to post more, to be honest, in the new year. So that's a goal. So do that. Follow. (laughs) And you know what? I hear tell 
that it's really helpful to, uh, on your podcast platform of choice, leave us five stars and a review. Gets us up there. Like I said, we're on all of them. I don't know if anybody's listening to this. Somebody is. Somebody told me that they liked it. There's at least, at least a solid five people who listen to this. So. And you know what? It doesn't matter. You can't stop us. And you know what? If you want to start a podcast, nobody can stop you. Just do it. It's pretty fun. Exactly. You hang out. You talk for a while. You hit stop. And then we'll do it again next time. Don't let fear stop you from starting your cast. That's right. And if you and if you are afraid, push through. It feels good when you're done. Exactly. Au revoir, everyone. Au revoir.